Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing technology industry. People who work in some of the most largest media tech and advertising companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by Anu Shukla. Anu is a serial entrepreneur with over 20 years of high-tech industry experience, having created a billion dollars of enterprise value from MarTech startups. She's a founder and CEO of RewardsPay and the co-founder and executive chair of Botco.ai. Anu formerly was the founder and CEO of OfferPal Media, aka Tapjoy, which was sold for about $400 million cash in January 2022. She was a founder and former CEO of, and director of MyBuys Inc., formerly Ruben, uh, Rubicon Soft, a venture-backed company acquired in 2011 for $200 million. She started in 2002. And Anu, right back in the day, was a founder of Rubric Inc., one of the pioneers of enterprise marketing automation. Uh, that was about 19 years ago before the category of marketing automation even existed. She's also a venture partner at Elevate.vc, and she supports and mentors underrepresented Black women, Latinx, and other minority founders. Miss um, Shukla also serves on a number of boards of directors, including the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs and Executives and the International Museum of Women as well. She's also on the advisory board for the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara University. So that is a long, long list of credentials. But today we talk about the wonderful world of marketing automation. By now, you've probably heard me talk about um, Anu's long and storied career for more than 20 years, building solutions and innovating right back in the 90s in the marketing automation space. So we take a trip to the past and look at the origins of marketing automation. But we're also going to take a trip to the future and talk about some of the new innovations in automated marketing and what it means and where it's all heading. And so I'm very pleased and very happy to give you Anu Shukla. Hi, how are you? I'm so glad to be here. You're talking about my favorite subject and I'm going to be hard to shut up sometimes. <laughs> and I have been looking forward to this conversation for months now, Anu. When we first met, um, we took a little history trip together on marketing automation, and I learned a ton. And so I'm really excited to have you and to be unpacking automated marketing together. So let's start with an introduction to yourself. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, marketing automation in a second, but before we get there, I want to start with a bit of a self-declaration. When we first met, you said, I am the queen of drip marketing. And <laughs> I thought about that. And I'm like, well, yeah, you kind of are. You've been there. You've seen it all. You've done it all. But I want to understand perhaps for our listeners, a little bit more background on your work and uh, what you've been working on in the past and then what's led you to uh, your current companies today. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I know. I don't know whether that's a great thing to be the queen of drip marketing, but I'll tell you how it came about. Might be interesting for your listeners. Uh, when I started Rubric, that was 97, actually. Um, seems ancient history, but uh, they, you know, at that time, we were trying to raise money for Rubric, and we went to all the venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road, and a question often came up, which is, 
what is marketing automation? Is that is that something that can even be done? Because it's an oxymoron. Marketing is really an art, not a science. And so we had to convince people that marketing could be automated. And I did that referring to my own experience. And my own experience was I was a fairly well-known, uh, I would say some people said I was in the top five. And even a magazine did an article on your dream team in B2B um, in, in, in a business, in an enterprise, your dream uh, CMO is, uh, is, is her, like they gave my name because I was very successful uh, for the companies, uh, you know, that I, um, that I, I, you know, that I work for. So basically in order to make myself, you know, do my job, I had developed a lot of homegrown tools in these software companies that I worked at. And these were all around what is now called campaign management, the ability to track, you know, it's called, I called it closed loop marketing, where we took all the expenditures that we had that we made or investments that we made in marketing and we were able to track it to sales. And the other one was what we called continuous relationship marketing. And continuous relationship marketing was really born out of the fact that I would spend $100,000 and go to a trade show. Trade shows in person were very common in B2B at that time. And when I went there and we came back with the, you know, hundreds of leads, we tossed them over to the salespeople. So we spent $100,000 to get a couple hundred of leads, people who came to our booth, saw our demo, talked to us, picked up our materials, you know, swiped their card because we were doing a promotion. And I gave it to the salespeople and I, I got nothing back. And then when I went to them and I said, well, what happened to the leads that I gave you from that trade show? They said, yeah, we called them and they're not ready to buy right now. So mm. I need more leads. So, I mean, I, I was like, wow, we spent $100,000 and I don't have a sale to show for it. The salespeople said they called those people and they weren't ready to buy. And I said, there has to be something better we can do. So we learned something about these people. They came to a show on, you know, um, on, on, on hybrid you know, electronics or something. So they're interested in hybrid electronics. And here's how they might be interested in our product. And the salespeople called them and they weren't interested at that time, but let's see what we know about them. We know they're interested in hybrid electronics in so-and-so features. So the next time we have a white paper on this subject, we'll send it to them. Uh, we'll actually mail it to them because they're in our database. So we'll call it the hybrid electronic list. And we'll send them this information on components or something. And you know, the next time we're having a webinar in their area, that anybody who falls in this sort of region will invite them to come to our webinar. And then we'll send them uh, an email or a direct email wasn't that common then, believe it or not. And we'll send them a direct mail on this subject or, you know, we'll keep them interested. So we call that drip marketing, which is taking content mm -hmm. and dripping it out to people that aren't ready to buy, but are going through a journey of discovery, right? Until they are ready to buy, until they become more qualified, they start moving down that funnel. And so this is why I called, and that was, we put that through, we put a workflow engine, which was graphical. And we put that into our software. And that was the key thing that, reason why my first three customers at Rubrik were Cisco, Hewlett Packard, and General Motors. And all of them spent many millions of dollars on my software in buying it, installing it, using it. And it was absolutely new to them. They had no marketing automation. And this was the feature they picked up that they really liked because guess what? B2B marketers who have big 
big discretionary budgets had that same experience, which is they spent tons of money on some activity and tossed those leads over to the wall, over the wall to salespeople. And salespeople said, I called them, they aren't ready to buy. So here, give me more leads. And, and they felt that they had just wasted a bunch of money on something that didn't result in a sale. And, and it was an investment that they wanted to nurture. So we called it continuous relationship marketing. After that, it became a major feature of other B2B software. I see it in Eloqua. I saw it in Marketo. In fact, I know those people. And so, you know, when they showed me the software, I said, ah, this looks a lot like rubric. And they went, yes, we like that part of it. It was made better. It was enhanced. Email was added. You know, other touch points were added. But essentially, it was the same idea that you, if you have an inquiry and it's not quite ready to buy, since it's a considered purchase, you want to stay with that person throughout that prospective buyer throughout their journey. And you want to be able to, you know, send them information and be alive in their consciousness so that when they are ready to make a decision, or they need more information, they know how to reach out to you. So this is why I made that famous uh, or infamous statement of I'm the queen of email drip marketing or <laughs> drip marketing because I had not seen it in the so any software until we put it into our first marketing automation uh, company rubric. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I think about it in the terms of there's there's strategy layer when it comes to this sort of automated marketing and even back then you know like this was uh it seems like it was more of a very strategic perspective like how do we stay in the top one two three categories set in the minds of our customers how do we nurture these relationships and for some of the brands that you uh, that you're working with back then hewlett packard for example you know that there's they don't have hundreds of potential leads they have thousands or even millions of leads potentially so you know for enterprise companies the way to make that more efficient the staying in the top category set in the consumer's mind but also nurturing those relationships and then triggering off when a customer is actually ready to purchase or have their next conversation i think that's obviously it's, it's it was drastic radical innovation back then but i actually want to take a step back for a minute because for now we're talking a lot about b2b and business to business sales and how do we actually nurture all of those um, business customers over a period of time but is marketing automation broader than that? I mean, how, if we step back, how do you actually define automated marketing? And what would you think is actually in the category and out of the category in the way that you frame it? Yes. So marketing automation, you know, from the time, from the days when it was considered an oxymoron to now is a well understood concept now. And you certainly can see that in the wave of companies and the amount of investments that enterprises, both B2C and B2B have made in marketing automation. So marketing automation is all about being able to um, reach, to identify who your, what your markets are and what your prospects are, reach out to them, take them through a journey that is suitable for them and you, learn about them, act on it, and get in, you know, get into their consciousness or get in front of them through whatever me, me, you know methods work for your product. Obviously, for a considered purchase versus a consumer product, it's a little different. But now you're using channels like social, uh, you're using video, you're using a search, and you're using brand advertising. 
or more targeted advertising. You know, you're using different platforms, different digital outlets to get your content out. And, and the whole idea is to establish your image or your brand in front of your customer or your prospective customer. And then also, you know, automate your communications with them in a manner which is suitable and, and, and reasonable for the channels that they use. And so you meet them where they are in the method of communication that they like and give them the information they need and present your products and services in a manner that makes them want to become your customer. That is what marketing and all, you know, marketing automation encompasses all of that. And as you can see, it will do that in a B2C context and in a B2B concept as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I think it's a, it's a great vision that marketing automation is all of those different touch points and how do you harness technology to draw customers in, to educate them, to obviously nurture them, to win them back as well, you know, perhaps when they're churning, you know, it is actually, I would say even to the extent that marketing automation is the operating system of marketing in a lot of ways. But if you look a bit broader than yes. that outside I, of I marketing, like that. Yeah, 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 I mean, I, I, I think it's very interesting because you know, you look at a lot of digital marketing today and a lot of it, and particularly over the past couple of years with, with a lot of changes in the privacy landscape. And I talk about privacy a lot in the MarTech Weekly and in the, in the podcast, because I, I, because it is such a major force in, in changing how we do online marketing. But I do think that a lot of companies now, particularly companies that are skewed towards online, their operating system is their CRM. Their operating system is their marketing automation platform. And how do they actually nurture customers from unknown customer right through to known, right through to engage, they purchased and then winning them back and engaging them long tail. It's become a big industry and it's there's a lot to do with it now. I mean, marketing automation has this umbrella across other things like sales automation, also customer service automation and all of the different interactions. And it's sort of under this umbrella of marketing automation and CRM. And so, but I do like your vision for marketing marketing automation. I think it's a very holistic understanding and, and a great way to approach what this massive umbrella actually is and, and what's in it. But let's let's talk a little bit about Rubrik and you've touched on that just previously, but you founded that company, exited that company for 366 million. I actually, in research for this podcast, I went back and read the 1998 press release announcing the marketing automation software from Rubrik. And there's this great quote, which I think is sort of stood the test of time, but it'd be great to see what you think. The quote says this, um, it talks about the need to close the loop between sales and marketing, enabling the output from marketing programs to feed back directly into sales programs, which drive customer services and customer care schemes. Now, that to me could be in a press release in 2022 and it would not change. I still see marketing automation startups coming into market saying almost exactly the same thing as, as you were saying back in 1998. But I, I want to know, I mean, what has changed since then? Are the needs still the same for most B2B companies or have they changed a lot? What's your perspective on that? You know, I would say that we were surprised when we started, I'm jumping into Botco AI, but that was one of the reasons we started Barco AI, because we noticed that things hadn't changed that much. And not only from what people are saying about it, but you know how much people have actually delivered on this. 
and what is the effectiveness of this right now? What has changed is how many people are using it, how many companies are using it. When we launched Rubrik into the marketplace, obviously we were pioneers. There was a couple of other companies at our heels or along with us that were, you know, had a different take, a little bit of different take, but essentially trying to address some piece of that marketing automation pie. But you know, we were just brand new. It was a it's a landscape that was, I think, pretty you know unsaturated. Now a lot more companies are using marketing automation, and you will say, you will hear people say, you know, I'm a Salesforce shop. I use Pardot. Um, I use Marketo. I use Eloqua. I you know from Oracle. I'm from SAP. I use you know SAP's marketing automation tools, and so on and so forth. So a lot more prevalence of marketing automation systems. So that's good because I think companies realize that without some form of automation, we can't really do this you know, job at the scale we need to do it at. Other than that, I would say I can see some addition of social. So people do realize, especially if they're in somewhat consumer-oriented business, that they need to leverage the power of some social media to get the word out about their products. And they could be e-commerce products or lower priced B2B products, so on and so forth. I see also the innovative use of video. So people are using, you know, video to sort of bring points. So video is a very good different format. You have to present things differently in video. But as far as channels, especially in B2P, I see it's typically still they're using email. And but only when I talk to large companies, you know, that are using marketing automation and that are using email primarily for their drip marketing or nurturing or what have you. They've talked about results. And we used to have 50% open rates. We used to have like massive conversions, 20% conversions. Like these were the numbers that we were used to. Now, if you're using email as your primary sort of drip marketing channel, you're going to see much lower results. So you're going, you know, you'd be happy if you're getting 1% conversion rates. And so obviously our marketing automation users that are, you know, that are using these technologies are under pressure to produce more results and, and, and they don't have enough tools in their bag really if they're just using email. And so they feel a little bit threatened because now, you know, the people they serve, which is usually the sales force are even more upset mm. saying, I'm not getting enough qualified leads. You know, I know what is, you know, this is an unqualified lead, the MQ, there are not enough MQLs that we can then turn into SQLs. And so the whole funnel is kind of jammed up with poor results in the beginning. So that's one of the things that we noticed that some of these tactics are simply less effective now because there's so much noise because more people are using it, right? And so this was one of the reasons why we decided to jump back into the marketing automation fray because we felt that we could, there's enough technology disruption with AI and there's enough technology disruption with new channels, messaging, text, chat, that we can have two-way conversations with people. And that might change the mix of results for, for, for demand generation because now you have a way to capture the voice of the customer and understand what they're saying through NLP and respond to them. This is completely different than one-way email or even one-way text. Plus it's on a mobile device and more people are tied to their mobile device and it's not as crowded as let's say a, a general email inbox. So this is one of the reasons why we said, you know, this is a, probably a time for a platform shift 
in marketing automation, if we can harness these technologies into a reliable and scalable platform that enterprises are comfortable in using. And that is why we came up with Botco because there was change, not, not always for the better, in marketing automation stacks that were out there. Mm. Yeah, I, it's, I, I think it's, there's a lot there, right? I think there's been so much change and you've touched on a lot of different angles around the, the needs for marketing automation across channels. And, you know, like, for example, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have TikTok. 20 years ago, we didn't have Twitter, you know, so we didn't have some of those major channels, which marketers are, are using and they're continually experimenting with. So there's a channel change. There's also the change in terms of how you can use the data itself. So you, as you mentioned, Boko AI, and we talk about that company in a little bit, um, but there's, you know, even when across minimum qualified lead to sale, marketing qualified lead to sales qualified lead processes, you know, the algorithmic way you can actually look at those leads and all the different interactions and qualify them so that you can give sales the best sort of group of customers to start those conversations with. You know, there's a lot of that sort of AI data structure innovation that's happened over the years. There's also been the change around going from on-prem to in the cloud as well, which I think is a major leap for marketing automation because it means you can just go on a browser, you know, and Salesforce has been predicated on that idea. It's a CRM in the cloud, you know, and that was one of the biggest sort of differentiation points for that company when they were emerging many years ago. And so you have sort of the data structure, the cloud, you also have all this diversification in terms of channels and then how marketers can tap into that. But what remains, Anu, is the same need. I mean, the need for marketing and the need to sales have, uh, to this 1998 press release, have not changed. Close the loop between sales and marketing. Enable the output for marketing programs to feed back directly into sales programs. That has not changed one bit. All of the things that have happened is there's more options in the market, but there's also more opportunities to make that more efficient and effective. But as you mentioned, back in the day, and when perhaps there was less automated marketing, especially in 1998, there was definitely not a lot of it. Um, but uh, back in the day, you know, email was a, a golden channel. It was a channel that was so effective. Um, you know, 50% open rates are wild in this type of economy now. You know, 20% conversions off the back of an email is incredible. You look at that and you say, well, even though there's been this massive diversification in channels across social and video and SMS and chat and applications, email is still a massive cornerstone. And it's still, I think, one of the major drivers for why marketing automation has become so successful as a technology for marketers. But it's also the main state. So it's still uh, quite effective. Most companies I work with, they have a very well-developed email marketing program. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. All their other channels are less developed or they're more experimental. But what are your thoughts? I mean, is email still the cornerstone? Should that change? What are your thoughts? You know, email is still a cornerstone, especially for transactional emails. And I don't think email is going away. In, in our days, in, in the earlier days, people would say the mainframe is dead. Guess what? You know, it's true 2022, the mainframe is still not dead, okay? Mm. So there, there's a use for the mainframe and only mainframe can do that, right? And so distributed computing always said that. And, you know, with cloud, everybody says that on-premise is dead. But you know what? If you're using RPA, you're probably on-premise and you're a big organization and you're using, you know, process automation. It's going to have to be on-premise because it's dealing with so many uh, on-premise and, and, and cloud systems both. So I hate to say anything is dead. So I hate to say 
Email is dead, right? Email is very much used for transactional, used in our day-to-day -day communication. It's used in so many different ways, right? What I'm saying is that in the use of marketing, email is now a lot less effective than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because of the volume of email and the sophistication of the major email providers to throw you into a promotions tab or to throw you into a spam folder, okay? So you have to, as a marketer, if you're gonna stay on top, you have to find other ways to get better results from your marketing dollars and sending out bulk emails only is not it. So what our customers do, for example, as many of our customers will send out an email, but they'll send you to a landing page where you have a conversational agent that can engage with you, okay? So they'll just say chat with us, like right here, so that you can immediately ask, you're really interested, and you open the email, you engage with the content, then they want you to engage further and qualify you while you qualify them and get you into a different kind of you know, cadence and raise you above sort of the noise. So I don't think email is dead, but I think it needs to be supplemented now. Plus, you know, you want to, people are living in chat. And I, again, this is self-serving, of course, to Barco AI, but people are living in chat and living in messaging. You know, I am dealing with everybody from my insurance company to my bank on my texting. And that's when I pay attention. Mm. When it says, hey, you've got, your, your bill is due, click here to pay now, right? That's when I respond. And when I'm, I'm associating with so many people, it's, you know, when they want to get my attention, they'll go on into my chat interface and, you know, ping me on Messenger or WhatsApp if they're global. And so when I look at what WeChat has done in China, I really see it as an example of what's going to happen here or what WhatsApp is doing in India, which is more than email, WeChat is the communication. So one of our clients does global campaigns. It's a Fortune 50 company. They send email campaigns, templates, everything in Eloqua over to PRC and say, here, use this, you know, translate it into Mandarin and you can use this. And, and they're unused. And they said, no, because we are dealing with all our value-added resellers in this country on WeChat. Therefore, don't send us email campaigns, send us campaigns we can use on WeChat. And their primary business communication is through WeChat with 1,300 value-added resellers. And so this is what I think that we need to enable. You have to meet people where they're at. You can't be you can't be having 1% open rates on your email or 2% open rates on your email. That's pathetic and very expensive when you can have a WeChat channel with your and, and open it up and have much better results. That's what you're going to do. You just have to have the right technologies that make it part of everything you do. So, you know, that integrated with everything. So, you know, not only do you have email, but you also have chat, you have texting, messaging. You can combine all those three together for better results. And you can even use it to drive insights and into the conversations you're having. We used to dream about the fact there used to be this um, 
movement about one-to-one marketing. Mm. And we would say, you know, this is more personalized. It's like each marketing message is really tailored for that one person, right? That you're trying to deal with. It's not a one-to-many, it's one-to-one. That was the holy grail. And that involved a conversation. Conversations are natural things to do. So I do believe they have a place and they can make your existing dependence on email you know less painful hmm. yeah there's a great quote from uh, from actually from steve jobs no other than the mighty steve jobs back in 2010 i think he was in in a conference and and one of the questions directed to him was at that time i think apple were transitioning from flash to html5 in terms of media technologies and jobs was asked your customers are complaining like crazy moving from flash to html5 you know why are you doing this why why are you um sort of disrespecting almost the developer community who built so much on flash and all of your customers who are so used to this technology and steve jobs you know he sort of took a step back and he said well you know we at apple we invest at in technologies that are on the ascendancy and HTML5 is on its ascendancy. It's, it's growing, it's rapidly growing. There's a, a developer community that's, that's very invested and um, the technology is superior in many ways. And I think that sort of attitude of looking at the technologies that are ascendant in marketing. So to your point, looking at Chinese channels like WeChat and even TikTok and a lot of sort of the shopping retail attainment type of strategies in that Chinese Asian market, you know, that's on its ascendancy in the same way that email was on its ascendancy earlier. And to your point about email today, I mean, email is almost gatekept by most of the major platforms. So if you're on Outlook, that's owned by Microsoft. If you're on a Gmail, that's owned by Google. If you're on Apple Mail, that's opened by Apple. And those companies, they do a lot of screening and gatekeeping around how you can do email marketing. You know, you don't want to be landing in the, in the promotions folder in Gmail, for example, right? You want to be landing in updates or ideally in primary. But 20 years ago, those labels didn't exist. And that way of triaging emails and content didn't exist on email. And so we don't want to say that any channel's dead. I would say email's still got a bright and long future, but there are other channels that are worth experimenting in and ones that are on the ascendancy. I think that idea around conversations and enabling better conversations back and forth to that single view of customer, I think that's still a very important thing to think about for most marketers. And we'll get into Bokka AI and we'll talk about, and, and I'll, I'll let you give you our listeners a bit of an introduction to that platform and, and what you're doing with it. But a note on chatbots, I mean, they kind of had a bit of a moment back in the mid 2010s. I'm not sure if you remember, but back then, you know, Facebook had Messenger and there was a lot of bots on that platform. You know, it seemed like every app had, every company had a, a chatbot app on their website. But what ended up happening was that that sort of petered out. You know, there was a big moment. I saw there was like tons of bot engineers in the market and consultants and saying, this is a new thing. In the same way that people said that voice was a thing, Alexa and Siri and, and other sort of voice technologies. But it didn't really take off. And I think the big reason why was that the technology just wasn't just yet there yet. You know, the, the, the conversational bots weren't really able to pick up on context or nuance or be able to facilitate a conversation that's natural in a way that is really seamless for a customer. So it meant that customers had to work harder with these chatbots than just calling up a customer service agent at the end of the day. And so, or a sales representative. So I think, you know, there's, 
And I think there's a, a, a change now, and we'll talk about this in a second, but I want to talk about the why now for botco.ai. Give us, our listeners, a bit of an introduction to the platform, what it does. And we know that it's a solution for patient care and engagement, specifically in the healthcare industry. But what are you building and why is it important right now? Yes, um, thank you for that. And you said a lot of interesting things. So let's talk first. Let's lay the groundwork here by just referring to that wave of chatbots that weren't very useful, right? So when I look at, say, sales automation, right, before salesforce.com and before Siebel systems, right, we used to have ACT, ACT. It was a contact manager. It was very useful, okay? It was very useful, but it certainly wasn't Salesforce. So Salesforce came along and said, well, if you want to really do Salesforce automation at an enterprise level, you need this sort of pipeline development, contact management, plus this, plus that, right? So you need all of this, then you can really get a good picture of what's going on in your your sales pipeline and manage it better. Whereas with an act, it's just a contact manager. And that's what I consider the first generation chatbots to be, simply contact, you know, just rudimentary conversations that could be scripted. And so they are limited in usefulness. When I talk about conversational automation right now, it's no less useful or no less robust than say RPA, you know, process automation. You're automating the process of this conversation. And in order for it to be useful, we felt it needed certain things, right? And for enterprises to really get value out of it, other than those flim flam chatbots that anybody <laughs> put up, right? Was it had to have these following things. Number one, it had to be have the ability to have very complicated workflows. It had to have the ability to integrate with your current processes and your current workflows. So whether you want to get visitors from your website qualify them, and then have them book a a call with you or with a salesperson, you need to be able to send it into your CRM system of record at Salesforce or whatever you're using, if, or if it's a healthcare into an EHR system so that you can have this 360 degree process with a prospect qualified, you know, becoming, you know, having a meeting, becoming a customer. So And you have to be able to track that and you have to be able to look at, well, how much am I spending on this conversational automation and its subsequent integration so that I can track it to what sales it actually produced. You know, we have customers that use our enterprise chat platform and what they're doing is they're looking at, well, how many of these people, you know, actually signed up for my service and they're evaluating evaluating it month to month. And they're saying, well, let's say I spend, you know, $2,000 a month on this conversational agent that chat bot, if you call it the enterprise chat bot sitting on my website, guess what? Directly through this channel, I booked $60,000 worth of sales, whether that's subscriptions, move-ins into a senior living center, or people signing in for an addiction program for alcohol. But I, this is the revenue that I can directly track directly from the conversational interface, right? So that is, so we figured it had to have that kind of, you know, tracking, which is, you can see that from our 1998 releases, we focused on what are you spending? What is it resulting in? So ROI is a big deal. Integrated with your current systems and then AI, the AI machine learning part is very important because 
You want to have a natural conversation. You don't want to run out of room in the first script. And then that leads to the ability to training. And you can't have training without having a heck of a dashboard that shows you here are all the conversations. Here are how many messages took place in each conversation. Here's where you didn't have a good intent match. Here's where you went on fallback. Here's the topics that you didn't think about that you need to add. So we don't have to be like a consumer product like Siri, for example, or Alexa, where you need to have like 98 plus, 98% plus accuracy. But we need to be pretty close to it to for an enterprise to use it and for you not to run out of steam. So we believe that only adding these things and integrating them with your current stack would actually make things useful so that the problem with the older generation of chat, do-it-yourself chatbots was that they weren't very useful and they ran out of steam. And so the good thing about them was they were cheap or free, but when you actually are tracking your ROI of a conversational automation at your website and you're using it to drive revenue streams and you're tracking it very carefully, you need something that can be very useful. And that's what was the, the thought behind the amount of engineering and effort and pure technology we put into Botco AI. There's one piece here I'd love to unpack, which is the analytics angle. And I think you just mentioned that around having, being able to have dashboards and to see and track revenue off the back of conversations facilitated by, by a machine. But the analytics piece is, to me, it's almost like, it's almost like analytics 3D, you know, because at the moment, you know, there's marketers get analytics from a, a, a customer data from a bunch of different sources, right? There's CRM, what, what are customers spending? What's their conversion of emails, their web, web traffic through Google analytics or Adobe analytics. So you got like web data, perhaps you've got social media metrics and ad spend and, and all those advertising metrics. Then you've got your customer layer, customer data layer metrics as well. What, what's your core customer doing and what are they spending on? And then you've got these more fluid or more flexible methodologies like NPS scoring, which is more survey based to customers. So you're proactively going out and asking customers to rate your company if you know, they're going to be a promoter or not. But the missing piece is the combination of both that sort of quantitative and qualitative sources of data, whereas conversational bots at scale give you not only the, what is the conversion, what's the effectiveness of that particular chatbot channel, but also what are customers asking? And because the, the way that AI works and machine learning works is that each conversation needs to be categorized. It needs to be tagged. It needs to be compartmentalized so that a response can be given. So even on that factor, you can, you can start really understanding what, your, what questions your customers are asking in a realistic sense and what, in what categories do they sit under and what kinds of conversations lead to better outcomes as well. That to me, I think is a big opportunity in chatbots specifically is the ability to merge some of that qualitative, what are questions customers we're asking specifically, how can, how can we help them better, but also with hard data on engagement and conversions as well. That to me is the thing that I think a lot of people miss with conversational chatbots is the ability to collect probably a deeper layer of customer data and be able to actually act on it as well. I mean, to me, from time to time, I'll find insights, usually out of CRM and what customers are talking to. I'll go out and talk to customers and for my, my clients, my customers, I'll go out and do those things. And and from time to time, I'll have this one insight that changes not only how you might approach an email program, but also how you fundamentally positioning your brand. 
you know, often that is the case is that some of these insights from a customer can lead to drastic changes and, and significant results. So I think there's a big opportunity there just from the analytics perspective, outside of all of the other customer engagement and efficiencies you can gain as well. But I want to now move into some of the innovation in AI. And, and you know, there's been a few headlines over this year in 2022 around some of the technologies that are coming to market. So one that's been really prominent is a software called DAL-E2. It's a generative art AI that's run by OpenAI, and uh, they're starting to roll that out into to, uh, trialists and beta users. Um, there's another app which you can download today on the App Store, on the iPhone App Store called Emerson. It's a very human-like chatbot app, extremely human. Uh, it will tell you how it feels about how you're talking to it, you know, um, but it's not quite there, but it is very human-like. You've also got another software, which is hilarious story recently from a Google developer, an engineer, was working on a software called Lambda. And Lambda is a conversational bot, but the, the conversational bot convinced this engineer that it was somehow sentient and it had a consciousness and it caused quite a controversy because that Google engineer had to be sort of let go and he went to the press and we sent an email saying this AI is sentient and we're hitting this sort of inflection point in AI. But, you know, all of that. Some of the examples that I've just mentioned are funny, interesting, quite strange, but all of them sort of point in one direction, which is conversational AI is maturing. We are getting to a really interesting point where it's very human-like, very hard to distinguish a person from a machine now. But what are your thoughts on these innovations replacing marketing and customer service roles? Is this going to significantly augment um, how marketers go about doing their marketing and also customer service and sales? What do you think it would take for that to happen? I've already seen, even with COVID-19, a lot of B2B buyers moving from sort of the, the typical sales process to buying online or, buy, or using more e-commerce functions and replacing a lot of that sales or typical sales functions. Is that going to happen? Is that going to continue? What are your thoughts? You know, I think that, um, I think the, I, I like to think of it as the AI or the conversation about it's going to become more and more useful versus replacing a marketer or whatever, right? I, I did hear about the sentient story and I, I told one of my customers who brought it up, I said, yes, our bar also told us that we're not charging you enough. <laughs> we, <laughs> we didn't really train it for that, did we? And so we all had a good laugh. So, I mean, I think that the, they, they can appear to be based. What we try to emphasize to our customers is that they should create a avatar that is representative of their brand. But it should be very clear that this avatar is an AI conversational agent, not a human being. Mm. What we also do is we kind of mix, because you know, we said, we really find that customers will talk more freely to an AI bot than a human being sometimes. And most of the times, and, and so it's very clear, look, I am an AI agent and I'm here to answer all your questions that you may have. And they always, we try to emphasize functions like, you know, integrating it with live chat, for example. So you get to a point where the AI is running out of steam or the AI feels that they are, this person is so ready now to talk to a counselor about the specialized treatment we have for you in the facility that you've already chosen. We've already verified your insurance. You're, you're, it's time to talk to an intake or admissions counselor because you're like, we're ready to close you. So what it's doing is it's probably doing the work of a phone call sales qualifier, SDR. So we, here we just took a marketing function 
you know, about having a conversation and we added in the SDR capability. On our own website, we are constantly working on our own conversational agent called Botquina. Botquina is, we want Botquina to be the best SDR there is. And originally Botquina was merely there to answer marketing questions for inbound traffic and get them to book an appointment with an SDR. Now the SDRs have actually gone in and have actively actually trained Botquina to qualify people so they can go directly to the final stage of SDR or even booking a meeting directly with the salesperson. So yes, in that sense, the more well thought out the whole function is, the more it can do, it can help by taking away more of the routine and mundane tasks and areas for inefficiency like phone tag by getting all the information and giving all the information in a more seamless you know, journey for, for the customer, for the prospect. Yeah, I find this whole space so fascinating. And I think that we are, I, I do think that in the next 10 years, I do think that we are going to go through similar to in the early nineties, this revolution around how marketing and sales fundamentally interact with their customers. I actually think, and you know, I'm going to posit this as a bit of a wild idea, Anu, but it'd be great to get your thoughts. But I actually think that we may get to a point where it would be irresponsible to not have a conversational bot. It will be irresponsible for brands to not have these AIs dealing with customers at scale 24 seven. The days of the contact center being open nine to five, I think those days are coming to a close because these AIs are more efficient. They can run 24 seven. It's like having a million customer service reps running uh, 24 hours a day, dealing with millions of customers. That's the kind of scale that you can get to, but it could also be more socially responsible as well. If you have a bot, it's by, it's running off to find rules. There's no sort of indiscrepancies between customers dealing with, with people in certain ways. You know, there's a lot more fraud detection as well. There's there's a lot that that can come in that package in terms of conversational AI. And I, you know what? You, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, can give you, I can give you an example right now where this is not being deployed and it should be, right? Mm. And that is, I bank with one of the top 10 banks in the country. I won't name who they are. But I go into a shop that I've normally never shopped at. It's still in my same town. I was buying Halloween costumes, for example, right? And I, you know, I saw this interesting shop. I'm like, okay, let me just go in there and see if I can get something for my kids for Halloween. I walk in there and I use, try to use my card and it says, hey, you've, you've got to call the fraud department because you know, you've never been to this store. This is an unusual purchase. I'm like, yay, the bank is watching out for fraud for me. Mm. Call this number to unblock your card. We need to talk to you before you can actually use your card. So I call the number and it says, hey, thanks for calling. Uh, you've called our fraud line and the hold time is two hours and 48 minutes. So I'm what? supposed to stand at the store in downtown San Jose somewhere for two hours and 48 minutes. No, I'm just going to use another card. Okay. So over here, and then every time these agents or whatever get on me, but let me get this right. I really appreciate the system that picked up a potential fraud. I want to be protected. And I will absolutely call you, right? But you can't make me wait for three hours. And what are you going to ask me? You know, can you recognize, is this you? Give me your balance or tell me your last three transactions. Give me this password, you know, whatever. Whatever your fraud screening questions are. Well, you can just do that over text. 
Mm. You know, only I would know that information. Only I would have my phone and only I would know the information about what my bank balance is, right? So why do I have to wait for the agent to get free in two hours and 48 minutes to talk to me? You can just do this through chat, through Mm. text. And so why don't you deploy the right technology? And these are a, a classic example of where AI can be so helpful so you don't have to have a human being 24 hours a day, you know, for millions of calls. This is not very scalable and very expensive. Hmm. There's one element here, which I do think that is the only thing that is, is a bit of a bear case for chatbots, conversational AI, and that is the generational change that's kind of needed for this new paradigm to come into market properly. Because even in my own experience, when I go and talk to a, a, a company, I want to talk to somebody who's human. I don't want to talk to somebody, who, an email. I don't want to email back and forth. I want to get on the phone. I want to meet in person. If it's a big thing like, you know, refinancing a mortgage or if it's something like, you know, buying something big or if it, even if it's just a deal with a customer service issue. Even two days ago, I got a call from an Amazon delivery person to deliver a package. And I'm like, I'm glad that you called me. I'm talking to a real human. There's a human connection element here that is lost with AI, but I don't think that's a way to say that there's no future. I actually would say that it takes generational change, you know, in the same way that companies are building conversational AI and they're building these AI machine learning tools. There's the other other aspect of this. And I wrote about it in TMW, which is called the artificial customer customers using bots to do their bidding for them when it comes to shopping or discovering, or even negotiating for sales, you know, Gartner's calling it a multi-billion dollar industry in the next 10 to 15 years. So I think there's this element here where the promise of a human, very human-like artificial intelligent sort of service that would help very with help with a lot of the use cases and the ones that you just mentioned around fraud detection and custom, rapid customer service, all of that is really promising. But there's this other element, which is customers themselves employing bots to do their own, to do do the work for them. So eventually we won't have B2B or B2C, we'll have machine to machine, you know, and that would be a very different paradigm. But what I'm saying is that this is actually a generational thing. The next generation that comes um, after us will be more comfortable with dealing with machine learning directly as a customer as a consumer, as a patient, and the generation after that will even be more comfortable. So I do think there is a bit of a generational thing that may take 50 to hundred years, you know, because people take a while to get used to new innovation, you know, right. um, you know and it's only speeding up, but I, I do think there's a lot there around generational change around how customers use technology themselves and how they automate their own buying purchases and their processes. But all that, all that to say is that it's, I think there's a bright future and there's a lot to think about, particularly as we move into these new phases of marketing automation, the automated marketer, I should say. But I, I want to close out and just talk briefly about your role as a venture partner at Elevate VC. You're supporting and mentoring underrepresented people in the tech industry. I'd love for you to close us out. You're investing into the industry. You're seeing this next generation come to market and you're giving the hand up to a lot of people from a diverse set of backgrounds that perhaps would never really get into tech in the first place. Could you tell us a few stories? Uh, What does that look like to really support that next generation? And uh, what have you found so far? Um, So I have to give the credit for, to elevate, it's called elevate.vc, elevate venture capital to our GPs. I'm a venture partner there. Uh, And uh, our GPs had the vision that, you know, they really wanted to help underrepresented founders from minority communities to build generational wealth. 
right? To build generational wealth, it makes a big difference in your future generations. It gives them a leg up. And that's really like, I really bought into that vision. And that is why I joined them uh, as a venture partner. And so my job is to give my input on areas that I'm good at, or I know something about and vet the deals that come in. We've made 60% of our investments are, you know, women and black African-American founders already. And so 100% of our capital of our second fund too is about $50 million is deployed in the communities that we have targeted, the underrepresented communities. And I, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I personally invest, of course I invest through the fund, but also personally invest in a company. I would uh, take a board seat or take an advisory board seat or just mentor and help those founders. And it's just like an amazing, amazing, uh, rewarding and such bright people and no dearth, no dearth of deal flow that meet our criteria. And the whole idea is of our fund is also to make money. So not only do we follow our mission, but we actually are very good at making money as well. So it's in satisfying from bo- both perspectives as an investor and also as somebody who's trying to follow the mission and create generational wealth for underrepresented communities. One of the companies that we've invested in, I have personally invested in, is a company called Reverie, which is basically an um, LGBTQ, you know, online and streaming channel for that content. And the company has grown its audience, its revenues, its advertiser base. Some of the biggest brands have bought advertising on it and it's on multiple, you know, OTC channels and creating quite a buzz. So I'm very happy to be working with those, that set of co-founders. Uh, over there. There's also a company founded by a lady in New York called Time Series, where they're basically selling to hospitals. I was involved in doing some due diligence on that uh, deal. And it's basically a way for hospitals to automate in an automated fashion, account for the time that they spend on certain clinical, you know, projects so that it can be accounted for and billed to the right sponsoring agency, either government or nonprofit. And so it's, 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 it's already installed in seven to 10 hospitals and it's a female and African-American black founder. Uh, so again, very good, very innovative product, rapidly growing. And so those are basically some of our portfolio companies, but we see a lot of great deal flow, very qualified, and it's really a pleasure to work with these founders. They really have that drive and it's, it's, it's really nice to support them in that mission. I absolutely love that, Anu. I mean, I, I, I love that there is more investment going into people that are not as well connected. I mean, you've been in the VC game for a long time and, you know, I've, I've been dealing in that space a little bit myself and a lot of it is relationships and warm introductions and being able to have an opportunity to tell your story and to tell the story about the brand of the company that you're building and why it's important. Even just getting spots to talk about what you're doing to the right audience is just, it's a massive undertaking from people who don't have 
have those connections built in with family and friend networks as, as they grow up. So I love what you're doing. I back it. I support it. I think it's just absolutely wonderful to see innovation coming from all different parts of the world and from different cultures as well. So uh, yeah, really appreciate the work you're doing there. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I mean, we've covered both the history and the rich history of marketing automation. We've looked at the future. We've looked at what could change and what are the risks and what are the challenges and what are the awesome opportunities that are out there as well. But uh, Anu, I'd love for you to give our audience a, a place to go and visit, to perhaps have a conversation with you. And uh, where can we find Botco AI as well? Sure. So you can certainly come if you want to find out more about Botco AI. We're on LinkedIn. We're also, of course, our website is uh, botco.ai. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Anu Shukla. You can find me there. My email is ashukla at botco.ai. I'm very approachable. I really am very good with my email. And I'm very good with messaging on LinkedIn as well. So please do reach out and you can feel free to publish my contact information for folks. Whatever you do, don't call me. <laughs> Start because a chat. I prefer, I prefer chat. <laughs> so, you know. I love that. Uh, well, uh, we're regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the Martech Weekly Newsletter. People look like Anu, who are in the forefront of the industry, who are building and supporting the marketing technology community. And so we delve into topics that subscribers care about week to week. So if you'd like to read and subscribe, you can head to themartechweekly.com. Thanks for joining us, Anu. Thank you so much for having me.